Father, we do desire, or most of all, to know you, understand your word and what you have told us about yourself and about us. Lord, I pray this morning that you would help us to understand and help me, Lord, to get out of the way that your spirit may speak. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm uh, <clears throat> working in my yard one day, and um, a man and woman stroll into my driveway, and they're holding what looked like Bibles or books or something with them, and they, uh, they come approach me, and they ask me if I'd be interested in talking about um, how to have an abundant life. I said, Sure. Uh, I said, just don't get me upset, though. And I kind of holding a pickaxe, you know, I was working on it. I'm kind of tapping on it, and uh, they chuckled. But then they went to some obscure passage in Ecclesiastes and started talking about this and that. And I said, hold it, hold it, hold it. I just have one question. Um, tell me how I can get saved. That's all I want to know. See, because I, I want to move the conversation to the gospel, right? Because not only is it the most important thing we could be talking about, but, but they were self-deceived. And they need to hear the gospel to be freed from that deception, don't they? So don't talk about esoteric things about this and that. Get to the gospel. Well, so that's what I tried to do. And, and in the midst of that conversation, I asked them, so who do you think Jesus is? And, and they proceeded to tell me, you know, he's a special person, but he's a created being. He's not God. And um, he's the son of God, but not God Almighty and and so I tried to take them to John 1 and walk through that, and they realized they weren't getting anywhere. And so they, they asked me if I had read this little pamphlet. I'm not recommending you go out and get this, but I'm just, uh, this is what they had. And I said, actually, matters, as a matter of fact, I have. And um, I'd spent some time there. They eventually um, realized they weren't getting anywhere and, and moved on. But um, at least we got through the gospel together. But as I would, had been reading this pamphlet, I'm just curious, you know, what is it ultimately that they, the reason they don't believe in the Trinity, right? Because this is the question. Should you believe in the Trinity? Answer is yes, you should. That's what Scripture teaches. But I thought, well, why, why is it that they struggle with that? And here's a statement that I read on page 5 of their pamphlet. Divine revelation itself does not allow for such a view of God, a view of Trinity, that three, one God, three persons. They said, God is not a God of confusion, 1 Corinthians 14. In view of that statement, God would be responsible, or would God be responsible for a doctrine about Himself that is so confusing that even Hebrew, Greek, and Latin scholars cannot really explain it? If the Bible were true, it should be clearly and consistently presented in the Bible. So the reasoning goes: if I can't comprehend it, it must not be true. Really, is the standard of truth my ability to understand it? Is that the argument, really? A.W. Tozer said in the book Knowledge of the Holy, Some persons who reject all they cannot explain have denied that God is Trinity. Subjecting the Most High to their cold, level-eyed scrutiny, they conclude it is impossible that He could be both one and three. These forget that their whole life is enshrouded in mystery. They fail to consider that any real explanation of even the simplest phenomena in nature lies hidden in obscurity and can no more be explained than can the mystery of the Godhead. I think he's exactly right. Our life is enshrouded in mystery. Even the greatest of minds cannot fully explain the universe. Physicists hit a wall in trying to explain and understand the nature of the atom itself. Astronomers do not fully understand, nor can they explain many features in the universe, such as the quantum singularity or even gravity can't be explained ultimately as to how it works. 
Biologists come to a screeching halt when trying to give a full disclosure of how even our basic cell works. Yes, we've learned a lot. We're growing in our understanding of these things, but we don't know them fully. How much more hidden in obscurity would be the one who created nature? If nature's confusing and difficult, the God of creation would be all the more difficult to understand, would He not? Psalm 145.3 says this, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. That is, you cannot form an expedition and go and find every aspect of His greatness and discover it. He has no boundaries. He cannot be fully comprehended. You can't search Him out completely. This is what Job's friend Zophar declared. Zophar got a lot wrong, by the way. But there is one thing he got right as he was speaking to Job. In Job 11.7, he said this, Can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? They are as high as the heavens. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. He's basically saying what is true. God is incomprehensible. Yet we as humans try to box Him in, don't we? We try to create this God box where we can define Him, understand Him, confine Him to our thinking. That's what the Israelites did when they created the golden calf and worshipped it. And they said, this is, this is Yahweh that delivered us from Israel. Because I can handle this one. I can understand Him. I, he, I can define Him. That's why there was a, such a struggle and still is with idol worship. We want a God that we can contain. We try to make this book into one of those you know, yellow books that you might see in the Barnes & Nobles. You know, God for Dummies. And we try to dumb it down. But all through history... There have been many who just aren't satisfied with what the Scripture teaches about God. That's because they want God to be definable, explainable, tame. Tozer also said this, Left to ourselves, we immediately, tend immediately to reduce God to manageable terms. We need the feeling of security that comes from knowing what God is like. And no truth about God has been so twisted, distorted, abused, maligned, constrained as... The truth that God is a triune God, that He is one God in three persons. But does that mean, well, because God is infinite, because He is incomprehensible, that that I can't know Him? No, no, God is knowable, just not fully comprehensible. Does that mean that, well, since God is infinite and that there's, this, you know, I'm, I hit a wall when I try to understand the Trinity, I, I should really go no further. I'll leave that to the theologians to figure out and, and I'll just go on my merry way. Just how important is it that I really understand the Trinity or that I seek to understand it as best I can? Is that just one of those doctrines for, for Bible class or for seminary? Well, I think Paul would tell us in Ephesians 1. Turn there with me if you haven't gone there already. Ephesians 1, I want us to look at the passage and see what place Paul has in knowing the Trinity in regards to believers. What priority does he give it? I'm going to be looking at Ephesians 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. 
In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things upon the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. An amazing introduction to this letter. If you you remember from last week, we talked about Paul wrote to the Ephesians because he had heard of their concern for him. Remember that he had told them the last time he'd seen the Ephesian elders a few years earlier that he would probably not see them again and that he was ready to die. And so they were concerned about him and heard that he was imprisoned. And Paul wanted to write back to them and say, hey, don't have your focus on me. You know, you're, I'm in prison because of a message I brought to you. And I just want to bring your attention back to that message, to the gospel, to the good news of Jesus Christ. And I find it interesting that as Paul sits down and he writes this letter that, that he summarizes in Ephesians 4.1, I therefore the Lord entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. What's, what is it that he's going to focus on? Where is he going to start this message of the gospel? Paul begins it with the Trinity. He begins it with a right understanding of who God is in our salvation. The Father who chooses, the Son who redeems, and the Spirit who secures Ultimately, the Trinity matters because the Trinity is at the heart of the gospel. We get God wrong, we get the gospel wrong. In fact, God, Paul, God through Paul, gives much attention to the Trinity in this letter to the Ephesians. The, uh, he mentions the Father specifically, the Son specifically, and the Spirit specifically more frequently in the letter to the Ephesians than any of, other Paul, of, other, any other of Paul's letters. It's topic of his mind. Paul speaks of them because it's important in relationship to the gospel. And nowhere in Scripture, really, do we see the the roles of the Trinity in our salvation depicted with with such clarity and depth and literary skill as we do see here in Ephesians 1. And since Paul begins with the Trinity, so will we. We'll set our focus on our triune God this morning. And there's two things I want to encourage you with. One is to know your triune God, and the second is to praise your triune God. And we'll look at knowing our triune God in three aspects. One is what is He and what is not. And secondly, how has God revealed Himself, unfolded this truth about the Godhead, about the Trinity in Scripture? And third, why does knowing any of these things matter ultimately? Why are they important that we seek to understand? Because the the JWs are not the first to be wrong about the Trinity. Uh, From the very early days of the church... Uh, that this message was confused and misunderstood. In fact, there's a man named Sibelius in the 3rd century who uh, popularized and propagated a, a teaching that, that it's called modalism today, but basically that God is, is one God. You know, he's, he's wrestling through, how could God be one in three? Well, it must mean that there is only one God and that he manifests himself distinctly and separately in three different ways. Like at one time, he's God the Father. Then he, he changes and puts on a different hat. He's God the Son. And then later, he's God the Spirit. But he's one God, basically with three jobs. But there's a problem with that. If you remember Jesus' baptism, did we not see three distinct persons there? 
The Father spoke, the Son was being baptized, and the Spirit descended in the form of a dove. Well, about a hundred years later, a man named Arius came along, and he popularized the teaching that Jesus had to be a created being because the Scriptures say that he was begotten by the Father and, and that he was firstborn of creation, so therefore he must be created. He's a special person, but he's a created person. Exactly what these guys believe. Well, the problem is that teaching became so popular and widespread that the church said, we have to deal with this. They gathered together at the Council of Nicaea and formed the Nicene Creed in 325, which clearly and explicitly declared the deity of Jesus Christ, that he is God. And then about 60 years later, another council convened in Constantinople in order to clarify the deity of the Holy Spirit. And that Nicene Creed, which we have today, I would encourage you to, to look it up, is, has, has really stood the test of time in, in declaring a very difficult truth that God is indeed one in three. Um, Augustine spent about 19 years putting together a treatise on the Holy Spirit, on the Father, and on the Son to clarify that God is one in essence, but three in persons. The Athanasian Creed it's one of the things that came about from that, among many other things. Now, Scripture does declare, specifically, primarily, that God is one. Right? Many passages talk about this. The Shema in Deuteronomy 6 that we spent some time in. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one, right? Deuteronomy 4.35, Moses said, To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, He is God. There is no other besides Him. In Isaiah 44.6, Isaiah said, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last, and there is no other God besides me. Exodus 3.14, God spoke to Moses and told him, I am. Tell them, I am has sent you. And at the same time, while these and many other texts talk about God being one, there's a clear teaching as well that God is three different persons. Three distinct persons. He is one being, one essence, but three persons. Matthew 28, one of the clearest passages on this. As Jesus came up, as he was speaking to the disciples at Galilee, he said, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, finish it with me, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Actually, Jesus articulated the depth of the Trinity right there in that one statement, where he gives the three names of the persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, but then says, baptize them in the name, singular, one God, in essence, of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Multiple names, but one singular name. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, Paul mentions the three together there as he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct persons, all recognizing themselves as such. They are one in essence, but they are different persons. Jesus said to the disciples in John fourteen sixteen, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper, that He may be with you forever. Notice how Jesus said, I. And then in referring to the Father as a separate person, He. And then the Holy Spirit as the helper, as He. So Jesus clearly recognized that there were three distinct persons within the Trinity. But that doesn't mean there's three gods. Some might think, well, we have a contradiction here because we just read these passages or heard from them that God is one. Now you're saying He's three. That's a contradiction. 
There are many texts, though, that, and we'll go through them as the week, in the weeks to come, that affirm and declare very clearly that the Son, the Father, and the Spirit are all God, that they are all divine. This statement is not contradictory. A contradictory statement would be God is one person and God is three persons. But no, we're not saying that. God is one being, one essence, and three persons. Those are different things. Now, we've tried and times past, and maybe some of you, I've used some illustrations in trying to explain this, and maybe some of you has, have, and I just want us to think about some of our illustrations for a minute. Like the clover, uh, where the God represented God as the clover, where there's three leaves and one clover. Or like Ed likes to sing to me in the office, the Veggie Tale one, the Shamrock song, or whatever that... Um, well, that's not really it, is it? Because each leaf of the clover is not the whole clover. But the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are fully God. Or you might hear the analogy of the egg, right? The shell, the yolk, and the egg white. But those are distinct parts. The egg white is not the yolk, is not the shell. They're not the same substance. That would be to divide God up into three parts. He's not. The Son, the Spirit, and the Father are all fully God. Or another popular analogy is, is water. You might hear that, that water has three phases, the, the liquid, the gas, and the solid, right? And that God, they're all the same substance, but three different forms. Well, that's really modalism. It's the one and the same thing that's being represented three different ways. Or you might have heard the illustration of a man who may have three different roles, like he's a farmer, uh, a deacon in a church maybe, and a father. Again, that's modalism. That's teaching one person with three different roles. That's not it. We have one being, one essence, with three different persons in the Godhead. Wayne Grudem says errors made regarding the Trinity, that they've all come about through attempts to simplify the doctrine of the Trinity and make it completely understandable, removing all mystery from it. This we can never do. You know, I personally think it's probably safest not trying to come up with illustrations because there is no analogy in creation that we could use because God is wholly different from anything in His creation. And so be careful about that if you, as you're trying to describe it. I think it's best to just stick to the passages that we have and say these passages teach this about God and these passages teach this about Him. Now some have taken the Bible to task because of that and say, well, why isn't there a place where we can go in the Bible where God's laid all of this out, laid out the entire doctrine of the Trinity clearly, where we have explanations of what it means that He's one essence and one being and then what it means that He's three persons and, and so that we can understand all these things with you know the, the information, the, the examples and everything so we can have all that in one place together. It seems like we have to collect from different texts all over the Bible to figure this out. Well, we often want the Bible to be like a textbook, don't we? But God has chosen to unveil Himself in a different way. He's chosen to reveal Himself in the course of history through circumstances and events. The Bible's a living book that's been given in the context of real life. God didn't come to creation and hand us His resume and say, here's, here's my resume as God and uh, uh, my biographical information is on pages 1 and 2. Um, you can get uh, more details on my communicable and incommunicable attributes in pages 3 through 6. The incommunicable ones are on pages 3 and 4. Communicable attributes on 4, 5, and 6. And then my experience and my interests are all at the end of my resume here. You know, God didn't do it that way. He determined the best way to reveal Himself to us, is as events unfolded in human history. The Bible is not a list of doctrines and attributes and creeds. It's a living, real book. It's God's story 
painted on the tapestry of creation. We can only come to understand God as we see Him involved with creation. I mean, I can explain compassion to you and what it means, or I can show it to you. I can define and describe love, or I can display it for you. And our unique and holy and incomprehensible, eternal, infinite God has made Himself known in exactly the way we needed Him to. He's revealed Himself in exactly the way that we needed Him to. And from day one, God has has begun to unfold who He is in His very nature as a triune God. What I wanted to do was just spend a, a couple of minutes looking back in the Old Testament in particular, and see how he does this. That Yes, the, the triune God and the Trinity is, is made fully clear and, and described and explained and seen in the New Testament, but, but even from the day of creation, God has not uh, kept hidden completely who he is and his, the plurality in his nature. So go back to Genesis 1. We'll start there, and I promise we're not going to... You're going to have lunch. We'll, we'll get there. But I just wanted us to look at a few passages. There are many, but there's a couple I find very interesting when we consider God's nature as a triune God, particularly in the Old Testament. We'll start in the very first verse of the Bible, in Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. We know this, at least the first verse, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Now, some have taken Spirit of God here as God's breath. The the Hebrew word rach does mean breath or life. But in this case, it's not God's breath moving over the water. For one, that would ascribe to Him a physical attribute. But also, too, the, the Spirit here is described as hovering as kind of waiting in anticipation to begin the creative act. Breath doesn't do that. It dissipates and spreads out. This is the Holy Spirit being referred to here. In the second verse of the Bible, we see a plurality in the Godhead. And just a few verses later, we see God proclaim, Let us make man in our image. God created man in His image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. So we see even there, in those verses, the, the, the plural pronoun, us. But yet the verb make is singular. It's a very interesting distinction. In Hebrew, the, the verbs will match the subject. Where if the subject's plural, like we or, or they or them, then we'll have the verb to be plural. And it'll, it'll be distinctly seen as that. Or if it's singular, I, me. I guess that's not going to be a subject. Um, all right, I didn't do so hot in English. But... But if the subject is singular, then the verb will be singular. Well, in this case, the subject, us, is plural. But the verb, make, is singular. And then later in Genesis, God describes himself as us. In Genesis 3.22, Genesis 11.7, in Isaiah 6.8, God refers to himself as us. Look at Exodus 3 for a minute. You remember the burning bush, right? Who was in the burning bush? Who was in the burning bush? Now everyone's afraid to answer. I don't know. It's going to trick. Well, let's look. Exodus 3, we'll start in verse 1. When Moses, or now Moses, was pastoring the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. 
And he looked, that's Moses, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. Let's stop there a second. Who's in the bush? Verse 3, what does it say? Angel of the Lord's in the bush, right? Look at verse 4. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. Moses said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near and move the sandals. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So verse 3, it's the angel of the Lord in the bush. Verse 4, it's Yahweh, God, in the bush. So who is it? Is it the angel of the Lord or Yahweh in the bush? Yes. Good answer. (laughs) Another interesting... You know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? When uh, God visited Abraham told him of that within a year you're going to have a son. Then um, Sarah laughed and, and that whole situation. And then God, almost like he's speaking to himself, says, shall I reveal what I'm about to do in Sodom? And he tells Moses, uh, Moses uh, Abraham, he tells Abraham about what's going to happen, the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham goes through that interaction with him. If there's you know, 50, 45, 40, you know, 10 righteous people, uh, would he spare the city? Well, God goes to Sodom. And then we read this verse when, when Sodom is destroyed because of her wickedness. For Genesis 19.24 says, Then the Lord, Yahweh, rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. The picture here is the Lord, the angel of the Lord, on earth, has gone to Sodom, calling down fire from the Lord in heaven. This is God the Son bringing judgment from God the Father upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Spend some time. Look at that passage. Very interesting. Otherwise, it's very awkward. The Lord rained fire from the Lord. Look at Isaiah 48 for a minute. It has another interesting text. Isaiah 48. This one is one of the most fascinating ones to me because I believe strongly that it reveals the Trinity clearly in the Old Testament. Isaiah 48, verse 12. And what I want you to take note of as I start reading is who is the speaker? Who is the speaker? And what does he say about himself? Isaiah 48, verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel, whom I called. I am he. I am the first. I am also the last. That should sound familiar. Surely my hand founded the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand together. Who's speaking here? God is speaking here, right? The Creator, I am the first, I am the last. Well, then if we go down to verse 16, God mentions a few more things and He comes to this statement in verse 16. Come near to me. Listen to this. From the first I have not spoken in secret. From the time it took place I was there. And now the Lord God, Yahweh Master, has sent me and His Spirit. So God says that God sent Him and His Spirit. How else can we explain that except this is God the Son speaking In Isaiah, we know him to be the suffering servant. In Isaiah 53, we know him to be the servant. In Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50, who is to be the Messiah, who we know to be Jesus Christ, the Son of God, right? Here, I believe Jesus is speaking because he says, God sent me and his spirit to perform a task. Now, some dispute this, I think, because of a bias against the Trinity in the Old Testament. I guess I believe it because I have a bias towards the Trinity in the Old Testament. But I believe this is a clear description, a fascinating description of God the Son, 
God the Father and God the Spirit. Now, careful study of these passages and many others show that there is more than one person described as the one true God. And that truth is made emphatically apparent when Jesus enters the scene and becomes incarnate in earth. Right? You remember when the angel was speaking with Mary, right? She had the question, how in the world am I going to have a baby? I haven't even known a man. I'm a virgin. And you remember what the angel said to her? The Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High, the Father, will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. There it is. Even before Jesus is born, at the moment of conception, or just before it, the Trinity is declared boldly and clearly. The Spirit will enact and enable you, Mary, to have and be conceived and have child from the Father, and He will be called the Son of God. So as, the, as Jesus Christ unveils Himself clearly upon the earth, then the Trinity now comes into full view. At the baptism, I already mentioned that, right? In Luke 3, we see all three persons of the Godhead. The Father speaking, the Son being baptized, and the Spirit descending in the form of a dove. Luke 4, 1 describes the Spirit and the Son as well. By the way, the early Christians, they used to say that if anyone doubted the Trinity, they would tell you, well, go to Jordan and you'll see a Trinity. In Luke 4, 1, Jesus says there, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. So Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit. Jesus openly declared his own deity in John 10, verse 30, when he said, I and the Father are one. Or in John 14, 9, when he said, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Now, he wasn't teaching modalism there that he was now appearing as the Son and before it used to be the Father. No, but he's saying, I'm one in essence with the Father. So if you've seen me, you've seen God. Later in Acts 2, 38... It's fascinating when we look at the the book of Acts as the gospel is moving out just after Jesus had died, rose again, and was was uh, had ascended to heaven. It's an interesting study. Look through the book of Acts and see how much you see the Trinity in there. I was uh, had a class in seminary. I wanted to do a paper. On, I was going to do it on the Trinity in the book of Acts. I couldn't even get past the first sermon before I filled out all the pages necessary required. I couldn't even get the whole Trinity. I just focused on the Holy Spirit. Because there's so much that's declared in the fabric of the gospel as it's gone out. Listen to what Peter said in Acts 2.38. Listen for the Trinity here. This is in the first public message proclaiming the Lord Jesus. Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. Did you see each member of the Trinity mentioned there? The Father's calling, the Son's redemption and forgiveness, the Spirit's work, the gift of the Spirit that we get uh, conversion and sanctification through Him. That's Ephesians 1, 3 to 14 in a nutshell right there. And that's the very first sermon proclaimed about the gospel in the book of Acts. See how the Trinity and the gospel are intertwined. They're, they're interconnected. And there's many more texts that, that talk about this. And I've referenced these passages not merely to present a, a doctrinal proof of the Trinity. I mean, some of you may be thinking, you know, isn't this something that should be left more, you know, for an in-depth Bible study or a seminary class or, or something like that? 
shouldn't we have something more practical to talk about on a, on a Sunday morning together? And, you know, I'm not some apologist. I'm not going to be going out and hunting out people in cults and, and proving them wrong about the Trinity. I'm just living my daily life. Why do I need to know this? Why spend time trying to delve into the depth and, and infinitude of an incomprehensible God? Why does the Trinity matter anyway? Listen, understanding the Trinity matters because as Peter describes it here in Acts 2, as Paul described it in Ephesians 1, it is interconnected with the gospel. You can't distinguish it from it. It is a part of it. It is the foundation of it. In fact, that's why in several epistles which focus on salvation, it is interesting to see where the writer starts. We've talked about Paul here in Ephesians 1. In 1 Peter 1, 2, listen to what Peter said as he was introducing his letter. To those who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. Or the author of Hebrews. Where did he begin his sermon as he was speaking to those who were considering walking away from Christ? He starts with the deity of Christ. He says this of Jesus in Hebrews 1.3, And the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. Or John, when he begins his gospel in 1 John, his uh, letter, excuse me, 1 John, where he's speaking to believers and assurance of salvation, listen to what he says. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we looked at and our hands handled concerning the word of life. And life was manifested, and we have seen it and proclaim and testify to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Why, John? Why are you telling us of your experience with Jesus? What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship indeed is with the Father and with His Son. John reveals here the fundamental reason why you and I need to understand our triune God. We can't miss this. John proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ so that we may have fellowship with God. Brothers and sisters, you need to know God is a trinity because it shows us His very nature. You see, in God's fundamental nature in His being is relational. Father, Son, and the Spirit have had a relationship from eternity past. And when He made us, His intention was to pull us into that relationship. That fellowship with God. That's why it's at the heart of the gospel. The good news is that God loves us and desires that we would enter into a relationship with Him. But there's a problem, isn't there? I'm a wicked, rebellious sinner. That has no business being anywhere near a holy and loving and just God. And so God puts together a plan. The Father puts together a plan of how He would bring this about. That He would send His Son to die on behalf of sinners. That He would send Jesus Christ to carry out the Father's plan. And grant us His righteousness so that we could be rightfully received into that fellowship. If we would repent and believe. And that the Spirit would be sent to make it happen. To bring about the conviction in our heart. To convert us as we respond in faith. To grant us that faith. To grant us repentance. To grant us sanctification. 
When we repent and believe, we're brought into a fellowship with the Father through the Son by the Spirit. You see, if God was a non-triune God, His basic nature would not be relational. He'd be an individual. No fellowship in eternity past. See, it, it turns everything on its head if we don't understand the Trinity and don't see God as a relational God. I want you to see this in John 14. It's very important that we understand this. This was just hours, right, before Jesus was going to hang on a cross. He's with His disciples in the upper room. And He gives them some comforting words. And in these words, Jesus reveals a profound insight into the Trinity. It's in John 14. We'll be reading a few verses there, starting in verse 16. Jesus says to His disciples, I will ask the Father... He will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Look down at verse 20. In that day you will know that I am in my father and you in me and I in you. Verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Do you catch what Jesus is saying here? Believers would be in Christ and that the Trinity would, would live and abide in us. An intimate fellowship. That transforms how I look at the gospel. Because then I understand God at His very nature is a relational God. And it is His desire to bring me into that relationship. That I would be part of that fellowship. Not to elevate me as God. No, not, not that at all. But just that I could experience the love that exists between Father, Son, and Spirit. That all of us as a community, as we repent, turn our faith to Christ, put it in Christ, trust in His sacrifice for our sins on the cross. God did that so that I could be introduced into the fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. He didn't hang on the cross so that you and I could simply get out of suffering in hell for eternity. He didn't hang on the cross simply so that you and I could, could be in heaven forever. He hung on that cross so that we could experience fellowship with God. That is unbelievable. That is incomprehensible. You want to cause your brain to pop, ponder and think about that for a while. That it matters so much to God that we experience what He is in His very nature as relational and fellowship that He would at great personal sacrifice, do what needed to happen so that that could happen. Yet many focus on the gospel a little differently than that. They see it as some legal or forensic transaction that God is, is sitting back here as judge. And that as we approach Him, we have this list of, of sins and, and rebellion and wickedness and, and those things deserving the punishment of hell, and rightly so. And we see Jesus as our intermediary who, if we would believe in Him, that, that He would basically stand in front of us, take the punishment on Himself so that we would not have to. And then, and then we live this life as we're, all, we're constantly blowing it. We're constantly sinning. So we need to come back to the, to the judge and stand before Him and then keep telling Him, well, the, the blood of Christ still covers me so I don't have to be punished. 
Now, these things are true. Jesus Christ did die as a sacrifice for our sins. Without his payment, we would suffer an eternity in hell, and deservedly so. God is judge. But in the gospel, the picture is a little bit more focused on God as a relational God. That we don't come to him that way. We come to him as father. We come to him as a part of a relationship that we have in him. If we have repent and believe, if we are his children, don't keep coming to God as your judge. You need to come to him as your father. We need to see the gospel through the eyes of the Trinity. That God being a relational God. If I understand the gospel is solely a forensic transaction, then I get God wrong. And I know many of us are caught into that kind of a mindset where we keep coming back to God as I've broken your law, I've blown it, and we're just full of guilt, and we come to him as a judge, you know, please don't, please don't whack me. And we live life that way, under guilt. We live life in a manner that we don't understand God rightly. Then we get the Christian life wrong and, and we, we get, go along and as we break his laws, we just keep going back to the judge. And brothers and sisters, that completely misses it. That totally misses it. Look at John 17. Go down a few chapters. I, I want you to see this. This is so important. Again, I'm not, please don't throw me out of the church here. I'm not discounting the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as payment for our sins and that we deservedly should suffer the fate and punishment of hell for those sins. And I'm not saying God is not our judge. Please don't misunderstand me. But as a believer, we need to look at God rightly and understand Him rightly and properly if we are to live the Christian life as God intended us to live it. John 17, verses 20 to 26. Jesus is praying to the Father here. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, He said, but for those who also... Uh, for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, and that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know you sent me, and love them, even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. See the relationship there? O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known you that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. These are... Incredible statements that Jesus is making in his prayer to the Father. That we would understand them. That we would understand who we are in Christ. That we are in the Father. That he is in us. That we are in the Son. That he is in us. We are in the Spirit. He is in us. That we experience something totally different. You know, and I think when we, we look at God, we don't get this. Because we keep God at a distance. We'll, we'll, we'll only go so far, and it's like, that's, that's far enough. We don't let God in. We're afraid of this relationship. We much prefer to, to live a life out of duty and responsibility and just keeping the laws and, and always going back to, okay, I've been, those, the sins I've committed, they're paid for, I'm good. We, all, we see God as, as judge and distant, we don't understand that his very nature, he desires relationship. And that's the invitation he's given us in the gospel. 
That is why Jesus died. That is why he shed his blood. That we might experience the Lord himself. And, you know, Jesus talked about that we would see his, God, see his glory. We'll see it fully one day as we experience something that is beyond what any of us have ever experienced, where we will see God for who He is. We will experience Him in a way that you can think of the happiest joy you've ever had in your life, and it will not even compare. And just that, that God, who's basically saying in all this, at the root of His gospel declaration is, I'm a relational God, it's who I am, and I want to invite you to participate and be a part of that relationship so that you can experience me. Not because I need you, but for your good, because I love you. Because I am most glorified when you experience that relationship. You will see my glory. And I will do whatever it takes. I have done whatever it takes. I will send my precious son to spill his blood for you. And you think about on the cross, right? When Jesus was hanging there, what did he cry out when he had the weight of our sin placed upon him? You remember? My... God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not my father, my father. Because it was in that moment that the relationship between father and son was severed so that ours could be restored. Jesus was willing to suffer that. To make a way for you and me to be forgiven. Again, the gospel is not solely a forensic transaction whereby... I am the lawbreaker standing before the judge. That will be for those who don't know God, who've rejected him when they stand before the great white throne. It's the bringing, actually, of a wicked, sinful, undeserving rebel into a relationship, into a fellowship with his creator. It's God's invitation to the one who's hated and spurned him all my life, all our lives to be invited into his family. Justification and forgiveness from the cross are precious doctrines because they provide the means to enter into that fellowship. Without justification, without Jesus' blood being shed on our behalf, without his righteousness being applied to us as we repent and believe, we would not be able to enter into that fellowship with God. I would ask and pray that this sinks into our hearts, that it it would move you from living a relationship out of fear, from being whacked by a judge, to realizing that you're now a part of a holy and sacred fellowship, and that you would never want to do anything to harm that fellowship, that you would never want to disappoint your God. I love what we just sang in, in that song, The Wondrous Cross. We're the whole realm of nature mine. That were a present far too small, right? Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. When I really understand who God is in His triune nature, in His relationship within Himself, then I understand what He has invited me to participate in or to to experience, I guess is a better way to say that. And that, that reality is what will motivate me and move me to live for Him. A teenager was approached by her friend one day who suggested to her to, to, to steal her dad's car, sneak out and go to a party with her. And the, uh, 
the girl said to her, I can't do that. And her friend said, well, how come? You afraid your dad's going to hurt you? She said, no, I'm afraid I would hurt my dad. The desire to come to God in obedience comes from our understanding of our fellowship with Him. And Paul, as he began his letter to the Ephesians, he could start nowhere else but the Trinity. That lays the foundation to the gospel. It all begins with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Look again at Ephesians 1.3. Yes, that was all introduction. Ephesians 1.3, where we'll just start in our little journey here into this amazing and wonderful passage. Paul begins the body of his letter here. Without, he first usually goes into prayer and he, he mentions specifically his, his thankfulness for, uh, for the people he's writing to and his prayer for them. But, but in this case, he starts directly with a praise to God. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Blessed is that word we get uh, uh, from the word eulogy. Um, it means the idea of, of being worthy of praise to be spoken well of, to be honored. That's the intent of a funeral, right? When we present a, a eulogy, it's to, to give honor to the person who's died. And Paul, Paul here, he, he can barely contain himself as he begins this letter and pondering the, the depths and the truths of the gospel. As he, he starts with his focus on God, his triune God, he can barely contain his excitement as he goes into this massive 202-word Greek sentence. You know, we get commas and periods. He didn't stop. He just kept going and going and going. The longest sentence in the New Testament. Because he was so filled with with praise and awe of God. It it wasn't his intent here to to present some, uh, formulate a a formal theology or creed here. He was overflowing with the, the matchless wonder of who God is and what he has done in our salvation. In fact, I believe verses 3 to 14 really uh, are like an Old Testament psalm. If you look at its structure, at its language, at its emotion, at the nature and focus on praise, it's really written like a psalm we might read in the Old Testament. In fact, the very first words of the paragraph, right? They burst forth with a a common expression you'll see in the Old Testament psalms. Blessed be God. Praise the Lord. And it's this first line which drives the rest of his poem. Here he mentions God the Father is the focus of blessing. God the Son is the sphere of that blessing. And God the Spirit is the means. We see God the Spirit here and we talked about spiritual blessing. That word really is the idea from the Spirit or of the Spirit, pertaining to the Spirit. So it's really the blessings that are from the Holy Spirit. So even in this first verse, Paul unveils or triune God. And the rest of the paragraph takes on a, a sort of poetic form as it's divided into three sections. We have the focus on God the Father in verses 3 to 5. Focus on God the Son in verses 6 through 12. And our focus on God the Holy Spirit in 13 and 14. And at the end of, of each of those sections, there's a common refrain, a repeated statement where he says, to the praise of the glory of His grace, to the praise of His glory in verse 12, to the praise of His glory in verse 14. Just like a psalm. Many psalms are structured that way with a repeated refrain, praise to God. There's other expressive language here in the psalm that talks about God's love and predestining us, His grace which He freely bestowed upon us, His grace which He lavished upon us. 
And I, I'm drawing these attention to these features here in this section because I want us not to, to read this like we might normally do in an epistle where we're taking in the information and, and processing it and then moving on to the next thing. But I want us to take it in as I believe Paul intended us to take it in. Not to dissect it phrase by phrase initially, but and I'm not discounting the value in doing that. We're going to do that actually in the next few weeks. But to first look at this as, as it was delivered, as a psalm declaring the wonder and beauty and majesty of God and praising Him for what He has done in our salvation and taking it in as a, as a majestic demonstration and declaration, a powerful one of our triune God. Christian, God has, has blessed you. He has blessed you richly, not just with the promise of paradise, but He has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Think about that for a minute. That would include, of course, every generous gift of the Spirit, illumination of His Word, the uh, gift of conversion, the spiritual gifts that are used to the benefit of the body, to the Spirit's help, and assistance in our sanctification, the Spirit interceding for our prayers. So we don't know how to pray, Romans 8 says, everything we need to grow in Christ. But brother and sister, as incredible as those things are, there's something bigger and broader than that even. Think about it. Who is in heaven? God is in heaven. The Son is sitting at His right hand. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, he's referring primarily to God himself. For no blessing can be experienced as it should be apart from God. Thomas Goodwin, a Puritan preacher, said this, God is saying to us in this passage, Thou shalt have all my blessedness to make thee blessed. And he later said, Indeed, all things else without God or besides God could never make us blessed. You see, every spiritual blessing described in the rest of the verses in this, uh, in this section, in verses 3 to 14, it's the triune God Himself. God is a relational triune God, and His grace and His mercy and His humility has blessed us through the death of His Son and the work of His Spirit to bring us into that relationship. Every spiritual blessing we have in Christ is summed up in who we have in Christ. Because of the Father's choosing, because of the Son's blood, because of the Spirit's sealing, we can have God. We can know Him. And the gospel message declares that in Christ's death, we can have the greatest gift in the universe, and that is God Himself. He is the ultimate spiritual blessing. And I would hope, just as we talk about this this morning, that that you would see and, and hopefully be motivated by just incredibly, the, the nature of the Trinity. And as we've talked about it, that, that you can see what that means in regards to your Christian life. If you know Christ and you're part of a relationship, you're part of a fellowship with the holy triune God of the universe. And, and as Paul, if we really sit back and, and think about that and think about what the gospel has brought for us, should we not like Him burst forth with praise? Should we not like Him declare with all of our being, praise God, blessed be God? Should we not be moved to do all things to the praise of His glory. God is the means of the gospel. He is the end of the gospel. And His glory is all that matters. Is it not? And that God will make that possible at great personal cost and humiliation for sinners like you and me.
How can we not burst forth and proclaim just like Paul did? Blessed be God. Calvary, how can we not together lift our voices and say to him, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Calvary, let me hear. Praise the Lord for what he has done. Let's stand together and sing the doxology together and just reflect on these truths about God. Reflect on what He has done for you. Think about it deeply as we sing to Him. And and it's hope of my heart that God would, through His truth and through His Word, move us to praise Him and honor Him as He deserves. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, our creatures here below. have been inadequate but i pray god that your spirit has spoken that you have helped us just a little more to understand who you are it's god the father god the son god the spirit that lord we would be moved lord in gratitude and moved in awe moved in repentance lord to seek to please you and to praise you in all we do Father, may you richly bless all of us here, Lord, and continue to pour out those blessings. You've already promised them. We thank you for that, Lord. You've done everything for us. We have done nothing for you. And yet, you've extended your hand in grace, welcomed us into fellowship with you. Let us never take that for granted, Lord. Let us always humbly come before you and and praise and Lord the sins that we struggle with Father help us help us to to run from them because Lord they would not reflect what you've done in our lives that they would harm our relationship with you that they would bring you dishonor help us Lord to rightly see who you are Father I pray if there are any here that God are not part of a fellowship with you because they have spurned your son they continue to live in rebellion against you that that you might Bring conviction to their heart to show them, Lord, their need for a Savior, to show them their need for Christ to take on their sin so that they would not suffer eternal punishment apart from you. Lord, we praise and thank you for our time together. In Jesus' name, amen.